Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Exodus. We'll be looking at several chapters of a narrative here in Exodus chapter 3 through the first part of chapter 6. Exodus chapter 3 through 6. If you notice the title of the message, it was When Life Hands You Lemons. And everybody has a different way to finish that phrase, right? When life hands you lemons, right? Well, yeah, that's probably the top one. But I found some others on the internet. When life hands you lemons, choke on them and die. That's terrible. That's morbid. When life hands you lemons, take them. Free stuff is cool. I can go with that. When life hands you lemons, make grape juice and let the world wonder how you did it. When life hands you lemons, throw them back and ask for chocolate. And the last one, you know that one. When life hands you lemons, make lemonade. If there's one thing we've learned in, in life, all of us, at some point in our life we've learned this, it is that lemons are on their way. Or they're maybe even here now. Or they have been here. But life is full of lemons in some way. It was certainly true for Moses, certainly true for the Israelites in Exodus. So in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 3, we're going to look at some narrative here and kind of set the scene for where we want to get to with what we're, we're accomplishing this morning. In Exodus chapter 3, if you remember the story, Moses in, in chapter 3 is living in Midian after fleeing from Egypt because he murdered an Egyptian. And he leaves in shame, heads to the backside of the desert, as it were, in Midian, but life kind of stabilizes for him. He gets married, he's got some kids, he's got some flocks and some herds. He's doing okay. Life is all right for Moses at this point. Then in chapter 3, God speaks to him through a burning bush. And Moses' life will never be the same. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. We're going to read a few verses here. This is what God tells Moses through the burning bush there. He reveals to Moses his promise to deliver Israel from Egypt. Verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Here's God's promise to deliver his people. They've been in slavery for years. And here's his promise to Moses that he's going to deliver Israel from Egypt. Well, you know the story, and Moses here then gives five excuses as to why he's not the one for God to choose to do this. And every time God answers his excuse with a reason. 
with encouragement, with a challenge. In verse 13, Moses says, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, who? What is his name? What do I say to him? Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. In these verses, God again reiterates to Moses the promise he had just given him moments earlier. In Exodus 4, God gives Moses signs. Do these things. Remember the, the rod and the snake and the hand in, in his bosom there that turned leprous and the water to blood. Do these signs for Israel and for Pharaoh so that they know that you're not just coming on your own, but you are coming through my power. Do these signs to prove to the people that God has sent you. Moses offers another excuse in there too. Remember he says, I can't speak very well. And God says, I created your voice. Don't worry. I'm going to send Aaron, your brother, with you. And he's going to be your spokesman for you. Well, Moses, after getting all this information, look at verse 18 of chapter 4. A little hesitantly, he sets out for Egypt. Verse 18, chapter 4. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey. And he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. Moses is on his way back. In verse 27, Aaron meets him, just as God said he would. He said, I'm going to send Aaron to you. And in verse 27, Aaron meets him. Moses tells Aaron everything that God has told him. And Aaron's on board. Then in verse 29, or 30, excuse me, verse 30, Moses' first challenge. 
His first challenge here is before the, the elders of Israel, will they come along with this plan? Will they believe me? Look at verse, verse 29 actually. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. Think about Moses. He has to be thinking, how is Israel going to respond to a man who 40 years ago left Egypt in shame? Now I'm going to show back up and say, you're supposed to follow me. How would the leaders of Israel, how would the people of Israel follow a man who was Israelite by birth, but Egyptian by upbringing? Would they follow such a man? Look at verse 31. Moses passes his first challenge here. It says, So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. They worshipped God because Moses has told them that God has remembered his people, that he would deliver them from slavery. Think about it. Can you imagine the rejoicing on the streets that night in Goshen? Because God had not forgotten about them. After 400 years of silence, God had remembered them and sent this man to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. They had to be thrilled. This is what God says he's going to do. And think about Moses. What must he be thinking? So far, so good. I can do this. Better yet, God can do this. God said Aaron would meet me and he'd be my spokesman. That happened. I came to the people. God said the people would believe me. That happened. Hey, we're on to something here. We can do this. Think about the excitement of the people. I mean, they have the promise of God. They have the people on their side. Pharaoh, God said, is, Pharaoh will play along. Pack your pillows, book your Airbnb in the promised land. We are getting out of Egypt, right? We are going. Exodus 4 ends with tremendous promise. It ends with hopefulness. The people hear Moses and they believe God is going to do this. And then chapter 5. Verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Here's this iconic phrase, right? You can just see Charlton Heston in his red robe. right? And he says, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Here's the moment of truth. Everything thus far, just as Moses expected it to go. Everything thus far, just as God said it would go. And he says to, to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh, verse 2, he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? In other words, Pharaoh says, the Lord, he has no jurisdiction here. He says I should let the people go. Ha! He has no control over what happens here. I do. And Pharaoh says, the end of verse 2, he says, I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Now use your sanctified imagination for a second and look at Moses. Up to this point, the script has been followed. Everything just as Moses thought it would go. 
he had to, in a sense, Moses had to be anticipating Pharaoh's cooperation. That he was going to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh was going to be like, okay, sure, let's do that. Fine with me. But then Pharaoh says, I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord? He has no power here. And it's not in the text, but I think Moses for a second, he said, wait, what? Uh, Aaron, do you have the script? Because he's going off script here. That's, that's not what was supposed to happen. That's not what Pharaoh was supposed to say. That didn't go as I expected it to go. But wait, it gets worse. Chapter 5 tells us that Pharaoh takes out his frustration by increasing the workload of the children of Israel. Remember, they used to get the straw. Pharaoh would get them the straw and they'd make the bricks, but now Pharaoh says no. No, it's not happening that way anymore. You, you guys are too idle. You need more work apparently since you want to leave. So he says, go get your own straw and keep making bricks and keep making the same number. No less, but now you have to do more work. So the leaders of Israel in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 5 says, The officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, Make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. They're complaining to Pharaoh about the added workload. Pharaoh, verse 17, blames Moses. But he said, you are idle, idle. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Who said that? Moses and Aaron. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of the bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Verse 20 says that the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel are leaving Pharaoh and they meet Moses and Aaron. And watch what they say, verse 21. They said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. How long ago was it, the end of chapter four, where they believed Moses and they said, we're going to the promised land. And now they said, Moses, you're trying to kill us. A little recap here. Moses is supposed to go into Pharaoh, deliver the Israelites from slavery, bring them to the freedom of the promised land. You with me on that so far? Instead, though, the Israelites are still in slavery and it's worse off than it's ever been. Not quite as Moses expected. Think about Moses' mindset. You know, he was supposed to go, everything was supposed to get better. He was supposed to triumphantly lead them out of Egypt. Instead, the people are still in Egypt and everyone hates his guts. Moses, you're trying to kill us. Moses has got to be thinking, why in the world did I sign up for this? I was, it was peaceful on the countryside and now I traded that for some griping slaves. I gave up dumb sheep for dumb people. That wasn't a trade Moses should have made. And Moses confronts God in his anger. Verse 22. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, 
Why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? This is why I think Moses was, was thinking that Pharaoh was going to say something different because he's so angry at the Lord. Verse 23, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. What is Moses saying? Moses is saying, God, you haven't done what you said you would do. Oh, and by the way, things have only gotten worse. Oh, and by the way, everyone hates me. Why, God? Why is it like this for us? Things were supposed to be better. Why does it have to go this way? You know what's ironic in this passage? If you look it back, the ancient Egyptian Sanskrit calendar, this is the year 2020. I made that up actually. But do you get the connection? Do you see the connection? The children of Israel thinking, hey, we're on to something here. This is a time of great promise. A time of great hopefulness. And then it's dashed by unexpected turmoil. Doesn't that sound kind of like what we're living through in a way? We entered 2020, kind of like the Israelites when Moses appeared. They're like, hey, we're, we're, we're going for this. And we enter 2020 with the hope of new beginnings. It's a, it's a new decade. It even has a cool-sounding name that Barbara Walters would be proud of. And all these things are going perfectly for us. And then... Boom, the world explodes. How many people had great hopes of starting a business or expanding a business, planning a wedding, of attending their own graduation, starting college, pivoting to a new career, buying a house, promising to visit their parents and grandparents more often. And now things seemingly are worse than they ever have been. Sounds like Exodus 3, 4, and 5. All the promise and hope that the Israelites had at the end of chapter 4 was demolished by the end of chapter 5. Like that. For many, all the promise of the year 2020 has been demolished. For some, life will never be the same. You realize that? For some people, life will never be the same. When it rains, it seems to be raining lemons. There's violence in the streets, hatred in our hearts, an invisible virus seemingly in the air, hype and panic in our psyche, worry on our mind, distrust in our hearts, distance from our loved ones, masks on our faces, sanitizer on our hands, and no toilet paper on the shelves. Why is it like this? We've all thought that at some point. Why is it like this? Why can't things just be better? But think about it. Don't apply it too narrowly to 2020 because in a sense, all of life is like that. True? In a sense, all of life, that that nagging question in the back of our minds is, why is life like this? Why so many lemons? Why is the hope of chapter 4 always dashed by the reality of chapter 5? Why can't Pharaoh just play along so life would be better? Why do bad things and bad people always seem to ruin God's good plans? And what am I supposed to do when things don't go as I expect them to? We'll give you hope. And it's right here in the the narrative. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now remember, 
Moses has just confronted God. God, you haven't done what you said you would do, and everything's worse, by the way. Look what God says in chapter 6, verse 1. Don't miss this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. That first phrase that God says to Moses, he says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. That is a monumental statement of the sovereignty and power of God. God does not say, oh no, what will I do? Instead, God says, I have Pharaoh right where I want him. That's what he says. Moses, watch what I will do to Pharaoh. See, Pharaoh's denial of Moses' request was not things spinning out of God's control. Instead, it was God maneuvering the things that are under his control, including Pharaoh. How do we know that? There's something that we may have missed in the narrative. Jump back with me. I think Moses missed it. Look at chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. I think Moses may have missed this. God says to Moses, verse 18, chapter 3, Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And God says this, verse 19, But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. Jump to chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Wait, what? God is going to harden the heart of Pharaoh so he will not let the people go, though he told Moses that he was going to deliver the people out of, his, out of Egypt, out of slavery. God never told Moses that he was going to waltz into Pharaoh and get Israel out of Egypt in one fell swoop. God never said that. He said Israel will leave Egypt, but he also told Moses twice that Pharaoh initially will not let you go. And in verse 21, he says, I'm doing that. I will harden his heart. That is a part of my plan. See, Pharaoh's refusal and consequent hardships were always a part of God's plan to get Israel out of Egypt. And there's a huge lesson for us to learn in this. Troubles, testings, and trials are always a part of the plan, not a deviation from the plan. Put it in today's time. Think about it this way. 2020 has always been on the calendar. 2020 has always been on the calendar. Which brings us to a big question in life, and that is this. Why? Why does God operate like this? Why does God allow negative events in an otherwise positive plan? 
the children of Israel getting out of Egypt was uber positive, right? It was the best thing that was going to happen to them. Yet he allows negative events to happen in a positive plan. He does it for two reasons. And I want you to get this today. He does it for two reasons. Number one, he does it for us. And number two, he does it for himself. He does it for us and he does it for himself. Number one, he does it for us to work in us the patience and perseverance that we need to live for him. It was our scripture reading earlier. If you would turn there, James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when, not if, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Why trials, testings, and troubles in an otherwise positive plan? It is for us, so that God can work in us the patience and the perseverance that we must have in order to live for him in a Christ-like way. I want to apply James 1 to Moses' life. Think about it for Moses. The trials that God brought into Moses, we've, we've recounted just a couple of them here, but he faces many, many more in leading the children of Israel. The trials develop Moses into the faithful leader that God wanted him to be. Think about the transformation in Moses. Remember the man who stood before God and said, God, I can't speak very well. We have countless times when Moses himself, not just Aaron, but Moses himself stands before Pharaoh and speaks. Countless times when when Moses stands before the people of Israel and speaks and declares faith in God. The one who said he couldn't speak very well is now standing in front of millions of people and speaking to them about having faith in God. That's how God's working in Moses' life. The one who thought at the end of chapter 5, the one who thought that God had lost control, a short time later would stand at the edge of the Red Sea with the rod of God in his hand and he would say to the people of Israel, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The one who thought God wasn't in control stands before the Red Sea and says God is in control. He will deliver us. See the growth that Moses is going through? The one who in his excuses said, God, this was his last excuse. He said, God, send anyone else. If there's anyone else, send them. That same man later on when he's about to die, he tells Joshua. He says, Joshua, do not be afraid. God will be with you. What's he saying? Joshua, you're the one that God wants. Don't be afraid. He'll be with you. How does Moses know that? He experienced it himself. He knows that he was the one that God wanted for that time and that God would be with him the whole way. See the growth in Moses' life that he got because of the trials, the troubles, and the testings that God put into his life? Jesus promised us in John 16, he said, in this world you will have tribulations. But he didn't stop there. He said, take heart because I have overcome the world. Take heart. Because Christ has overcome the world so that the tribulations become opportunities for your growth. That's the power of God. And that's the second reason. 
Number one, it's for us so that we grow into what God wants us to be. Number two, it is God brings testing and troubles and trials in our life to demonstrate to us the sovereign power of God to override evil and use it for good. God's mode of operation in the world and in your life and mine has always been to take the negative and to work it for positive. We could, we could share testimony after testimony of how that's true in our lives. What looked like negative, God has taken and used. You know who would have a great testimony to share with us about that? Joseph. Joseph, hated by his brothers, survives an attempt on his life only to be sold into slavery rises and proves himself as a trusted servant only to be falsely accused and thrown into prison. In prison, he demonstrates his value only to be forgotten by the butler. But Joseph was never forgotten by God because later, Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to save the lives of many people. Maybe an even better example of that is Jesus. Evil men committed the greatest perpetration of injustice the world has ever seen when they crucified the perfect son of God, Jesus Christ. Yet, you have to understand the sovereignty of God in that. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, preaching there on the day of Pentecost, he says this, talking about Jesus, Acts 2, verse 23 and 24. I'll start reading in verse 22. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying that evil men did exactly what evil men desire to do. And yet God sovereignly used and overrode that evil through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to bring salvation to all who believe in Christ. Put in a nutshell, God used the evil to save the world. You see that in there? He used the evil of wicked men to accomplish the purpose that God wanted to accomplish to save the world. That's the power of God. So why would God include such negative events in his positive plan so that he receives the glory in overcoming the evil? Every time that's true. He receives the glory in overcoming the evil, not us. It's why he did it to Moses and Pharaoh and the children of Israel back there. So that Moses couldn't say, look what I've done, look what we've done. It had to be the sovereign hand and power of God. It was true with Joseph that God got the glory in overcoming the evil. It was true with Jesus. It was true with Pharaoh. Was Pharaoh evil? Yes, did God overcome that evil? Yes. Did the children of Israel leave Egypt? Yes, God overcame it. It was true with the Apostle Paul. 
Go in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. See this in the life of, of the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Paul writes to Timothy, verse 12, chapter 1. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. God allowed Paul a very long leash for a time. The chiefest of sinners, as he calls himself later, the chiefest of sinners blasphemed God and persecuted Christians. We have to ask ourselves, why? Why would God allow that to go on for as long as it did? Why would God allow that in in Paul's life? Well, he answers that question. Second half of verse 13. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy. Watch this. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Why did God allow Paul such a long leash to, cre- to cause so much havoc in the first century church? As a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life, that God can overcome the evil of Paul's life and save him and transform him into a minister of the gospel. That's the sovereign power of God. It was true with Joseph, with Jesus, with Pharaoh, with the Apostle Paul, and we have a bunch of examples here today too where it's true. Does anyone here have sin in their past? Wow, no hands went up. That's surprising. Okay, good. There's a few. No, we all have sin in our past, yet if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God by his grace and his power has overcome that sin and that evil and he has gloriously saved your soul. You are an example of God overcoming evil to accomplish his purpose in the world. You are, you personally, as a believer in Jesus Christ and are an example of that. Why did God allow you to wallow in sin and self-righteousness as long as you did? Ephesians 2.7 answers that. Ephesians 2.7 says, right before that it says, God who is rich in mercy, he saved us. 2 verse 7 says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For the ages to come, he's going to show the exceeding riches of his grace through Jesus Christ to you. You realize that you are for eternity a showpiece of God's mercy and grace. That you are a showpiece that God can overcome evil and turn it into good. You are, as a believer in Jesus Christ, for all of eternity. So whose life has gone exactly as they expected and planned for it to go? Anybody? Nobody. 
whose life has been only hope and no heartache? And we ask ourselves why. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, we're reminded that our ways are not God's ways. That His ways are higher than our ways. The roadblocks, speed bumps, detours, pitfalls, hiccups, downturns, slowdowns, and even pandemics are all working in concert to bring about the Christ-likeness that God desires for each of us. When Moses looked at the events of Exodus chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, he looked at them as if there was a loss of control on God's part. And God responded by saying, no, everything is right on schedule. Would you jump back as we close to Exodus chapter 6? I want to show you what else God says. After verse number 1. Moses thought it was a loss of control, but God said, no, I've got Pharaoh right where I want him. And then God reiterates again to Moses the promise that he had given him. Verse 2. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by, by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. God had a promise to keep that even went further back than the promise of Moses. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, watch this, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. God says, I am the Lord. Therefore, I will do as I say I will do. Things not going as we expect or hope them to go is not God losing control. It's God using his control. He is not losing control. He is using his control. And that's something that though it's tough, we have to learn to trust that. We have to learn to trust that. The song we sang earlier, it says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Don't miss that phrase. He says, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. That's true. Throughout life, God is teaching us to say that. We learn to say it is well. It's not magic, it's not mysticism, it's not something we, we randomly come across God is teaching us to trust his sovereignty and his promise, his providence. It is a learned attitude. Through the spirit of God in us, through the word of God, and through God's orchestration of events, 
Little by little within us, God is working in us to adopt that attitude that we learn to say, whatever my lot. Whether slavery in Egypt or a 2020 pandemic, we are learning to say, God, your will and your way is well with my soul. Would you pray together with me? Lord, we are brought to a realization again this morning that you are a good and powerful God. That you sovereignly control all aspects of our lives and all aspects of the world. We are learning, Lord, gradually to trust in your providence and to trust in your sovereignty, to trust that you never lose control, but you have decided and determined to use your control in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us through your word, through your spirit, and through the things that you bring into our lives, that you would continuously teach us to say it as well. It is well with my soul. Grow us, Lord, in our Christ-likeness. Help us not to lose heart, not to lose hope, but to trust, to trust in you. Thank you, Lord, that you are good to us. You are always good. You are only good. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.